0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 9 of Leviticus, chapters 5 and 6. Well, the last time we met, we started to deal with a new class of sacrificial offerings, the Asham, A-S-H-A-M. And... It covered another aspect of sin and atonement. Making reparations for what one had done, whether the offense was intentional and known or inadvertent, and the person didn't consciously realize he had done the wrong thing, was all covered by this particular class of sacrificial offering, the asham. Uh, you know, years ago, when I first studied Leviticus, all I could focus on was this numbing litany all right, of sacrifices and, and these hundreds of meticulous rules and procedures and this incomprehensibly minute differences between the, the, the sorts of things these many sacrifices were supposed to deal with. Okay? It wasn't until later that I eventually realized that I was viewing all this through the lens of a lifetime as a church-going Western Christian who had been taught that far from being complex, the matter of sin and atonement was very simple, very straightforward. Everybody sinned, all sins were the same in the eyes of the Lord, and the remedy for it was one thing, Jesus Christ. Well, as it turns out, two of those three premises are true. Everybody sins, and the only remedy is Jesus. What's not correct, though, is this notion that all sins are the same in the eyes of the Lord. Further, sin and atonement is not a straightforward matter. It's very complex. It takes on many aspects, and we need to understand it. Now, in the Asham sacrifice, reparation is being paid to God because it is His holiness that's been transgressed against. A reparation is the making of amends. It's a way to try to make right the wrongs that have been done. It's not... or rather it is entirely different than a penalty. It's not a penalty. Paying the fine for a parking ticket is not a reparation. It's not about making amends. Rather, paying a fine is a penalty. It's a punishment. Making reparations is a matter of one's conscience and soul acknowledging that we did harm to an innocent or undeserving party and that the reparation is an attempt to compensate that party for their injury, the best that we can do. So in the Asham, the Lord says that somebody has assaulted his holiness. And therefore, according to his justice, he must be compensated. With the reparation, the trespasser is forgiven. But notice also that this reparation compensation must be given wholeheartedly. If it's not, the worshiper pays the reparation price but does so with a bad attitude, then it's no reparation at all. It's no different than a criminal who has robbed the bank, been caught, judged, sent to prison. There's no forgiveness at the end of the road. Just judgment and penalty for him. Now let me editorialize briefly. I hear all too often how a criminal goes to prison and pays his debt to society. According to the Bible, that's not true at all. The criminal is not paying anybody anything. He's being punished. His victim isn't made whole. No attempt to make amends to that individual happens, generally. Housing the criminal at our expense because he has harmed somebody doesn't pay back society what the criminal is doing is bearing a penalty for his actions paying a debt owed to society on the other hand is another way to say reparations and no criminal serving jail time is making reparations so as we go forward I want this to serve as a means for you to understand the difference between reparation and a penalty, and the Asham sacrifice is about reparation, compensation, not a penalty. Now let's look at another purpose for the Asham sacrifice. But before we do, let's go back and reread a portion of um, Leviticus 5, and we're going to start with verse 17. And work to the end. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17. If someone sins by doing something against any of the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai, concerning things which should not be done, he is guilty, even if he is unaware of it, and he bears the consequences of his wrongdoing. He must bring a ram without defect from the flock or its equivalent according to your appraisal to the priest for a guilt offering and the priest will make atonement concerning the error which he committed even though he was unaware of it and he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He is guilty before Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, if someone sins and acts perversely against Adonai by dealing falsely with his neighbor, in regard to a deposit or security entrusted him, by stealing from him, by extorting him, if a person commits any of these sins, then if he sinned and is guilty, he is to restore whatever it was. He stole or obtained by extortion or whatever was deposited with him or the lost object which he found, or anything about which he's sworn falsely. He is to restore it in full plus an additional one-fifth. He must return it to the person who owns it on the day when he presents his guilt offering. He is to bring, as his guilt offering to Adonai, a ram without defect from the flock, or its equivalent according to your appraisal, to the Kohen. It is a guilt offering. Thus, the Kohen, the priest, will make atonement for him before Adonai, and he will be forgiven in regard to whatever it was, whatever he did that made him guilty. So, verse seventeen says if someone sins by doing something against any of the mitzvot of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, he's guilty even if he's unaware of it, and he bears the consequences of his wrongdoing. This type of sin falls into the category of intentional, rather unintentional or inadvertent. The concept of inadvertent it's not precisely the way we typically think of it. Okay. Inadvertent to us means we didn't have any knowledge of it. We never meant to do it. We didn't realize it was even happening. It, it, it was the purest form of an honest error and accident, but apparently that's not quite the biblical definition of it. Inadvertent seems to have more to do with the level of seriousness of the sin whether or not a person should have reasonably known what he did was wrong or perhaps even the intent of the worshiper or God's assessment of the condition of his heart in other words it's a lot more subjective inadvertency is than it is cut and dried now the same applies to the concept of how it is that you did not realize when you were Committing a trespass, trespass against God, but later on you did. Okay, this is another of those hazy and not so well defined matters of which there's not, frankly, a universal scholarly agreement. First, it doesn't appear to be an issue whereby the worshiper didn't know that he was indulging in property, in this case, that belonged to the priest of the sanctuary, but later found out that it was, nor was it that the person was unaware that a particular law or command existed but later he found out it did instead this is that the discovery of his wrongdoing was a result of his own conscience he started feeling guilty okay? and the guilt was not so much that he knew exactly what he was guilty of he just felt guilt now that may seem kind of strange to us Almost emotionally unbalanced. Having guilty feelings, but having no idea what you'd done to produce the guilt. Okay. But in ancient times, there was probably no more universal and feared sin than the possibility of a trespass against the sacred property of a god. And this was not just in the Hebrew culture. It was that way in most cultures of that day. Imagine Somebody starts to feel guilty and now wonders what terrible fate's going to befall him as the result of some god or another that he might have offended. Yet he has no idea what he's done and no priest of that god is able to tell him. What a predicament. Okay. That is more or less the idea here in Leviticus 5 starting with verse 17. It's the case of a suspected trespass. Not a known trespass that this portion of the ritual covers. Do you understand this? A person is just worrying that he might have done something against the Lord. In order to assure that he doesn't have God's judgment poured out upon him, he decides it's best then to offer the asham. Right? And confess that he may have sinned against God's property. But because no one, not even the worshiper, knows what it is he might have done, he is allowed to bring less of a sacrifice than the person who knows what it is they've done wrong. Okay? The person who knows what trespass they've committed has to present the sacrificial ram plus an additional 20% of that ram's assigned value in silver shekels to the sanctuary. The person who only feels guilty, but neither he or anybody else knows what it is he's done, brings only the ram, and he's not required to give the shekels. So guilt's not all that bad. So in the end, it's probably fair to say that one of the primary purposes of this particular asham, was to soothe and calm the nervous wreck of a worshiper. Okay, in order to assure him and his family that all would be well between them and God. I mean, let's face it. In a system as we see being developed here in Leviticus where sin was meticulously defined okay, and a required ritual to atone for each of the many kinds of sin was needed, this had to have been a common problem. People thought about this a lot. Many overly sensitive Hebrews probably thought night and day about what they might have done to offend God and what to do about it because the consequences could be devastating. Many modern Christians do the same thing. Always worrying about what they might have done to offend our Father and how it might have harmed their relationship With him and what eternal consequence might come from it. The difference is that in the ancient days, confession and an animal sacrifice was necessary on an ongoing basis, right, to deal with sin. Today, for those who accept the finished work of Yeshua, all that's necessary to repair our relationship with the Father is our honest confession to him and a true spirit of repentance. The sacrifice was already made in the person of Jesus Christ and it's one time and it's permanent. You know, we wouldn't be human if we didn't wonder from time to time, particularly, I suppose, if we've encountered some sudden and unexplainable difficulties or illnesses or setbacks, if maybe we hadn't done something to grieve our Lord and now we're paying a price for it. It's like so much else in life. It's the degree and the balance that's important. Never wondering if you've offended God is about as unproductive as always wondering. Now in verse 20, we get a little different slant on what constitutes the type of of sin against the Lord that the Asham sacrifice is meant to atone for. And it is when the sin revolves around a person doing something against another person. If one casually reads verses 20 to 26, we would wonder how this has anything to do with sinning against God when in fact this seems all about stealing from your neighbor, committing extortion against him, or simply Dealing deceptively with it. Or or with people in general. The key is the first words of verse 24 where it says, For anything about which he has sworn falsely. That's the key. Remember, if someone has sworn to something, by definition, if they were a Hebrew, they invoke God's name. so in God's eyes we're right back to the issue we discussed first regarding the Asham. that when a person speaks a vow or an oath in God's name and then breaks it that's a problem in this case the vow or oath is that that person has indeed done something against his neighbor but when the matter is brought before a court he denies it he lies He swears falsely. He says, I didn't do it. But in fact, he did. It's the lying that's the issue, not the crime. Now, if that doesn't scare the pants off of you, then you didn't hear what I just said. In God's economy, swearing in his name falsely is considered a serious sin. Because it is directly against him. Sticking that brand new pair of combination pliers in your pocket, men, at Sears, is certainly a sin. But not nearly of the seriousness of putting your hand on that Bible and saying, I didn't do it. That's God's economy. The person who swears falsely, then, must now make a reparation both to the person he has harmed and to God. First, he has to return or make good on whatever it is he's stolen or damaged. He must make the person whole that he has harmed. Plus, he has to give that person an extra 20% of the value of that item that was involved. In addition to that, he brings a perfect ram to the temple as his Ashan sacrifice Or it could be his equivalent in silver shekels, and he gives that to the priest. Now, I hope you see this. When you do something against the command of God that basically affects only your relationship with God, like dealing improperly with his holy property, or making a vow to him and not following through, then reparations are only owed to him. If you do something against the command of God that harms another person... Then reparations that are due to that harmed person, and they're due to God. Because by definition, every sin we commit is a trespass against him. I'd like to draw your attention now to the last verse of chapter 5, as it says, The worshiper who brings his asham shall be forgiven because it reinforces what I have been telling you and will continue to hammer away at it for weeks to come. It is that Jehovah did not do a cosmic bait and switch on mankind. He didn't tell everybody, and then write down in the Torah, he didn't tell everybody of the biblical days of the Old Testament period that he'd forgive them, If they made the proper sacrificial atonement through the priesthood he had established and then said, eh, changed my mind. He said, if you will do this with a contrite heart, I will forgive you. And he did. And they were forgiven. This statement is included in Leviticus over and over again. Actual forgiveness occurred in the end, the purpose of all these sacrifices, as difficult as they may seem, is for the benefit of the worshiper. It's for the benefit of the trespasser. Okay? The benefit being that his conscience is cleared and that his relationship with God is restored and maintained. You know, that's something we should all be striving for every day. Okay, let's turn our attention now. To Leviticus chapter 6. Now, before we read it, let me comment that it would be best, probably, if we read chapters 6 and 7 together. This is one continuous work because that's what it is. Now, I, I ask you to recall that biblical chapter and verse numbers and where a so-called chapter or verse begins and ends is a very late edition. Right, by scholars that were added for the purpose of simply dividing and annotating the scriptures so that we can more easily study them and communicate to each other about them. Okay? It's done the Bible no harm. Right? In the original, each book was a continuous scroll written like a lengthy letter. There weren't any chapters, there weren't any verses. It's, however, as it would be a little bit too tedious for us, in my opinion, to continue reading All of chapter 7, immediately following chapter 6. We'll just go ahead and study the contents of 6 and then read 7 next time. Just understand that the context and purpose of chapter 6 and 7 all run together. And the context and purpose of these two chapters is this. They present what in Hebrews called the Torah. T-O-R-O-T, the Torah. The ritual procedures. Okay, for each of the five major sacrificial categories that we've now been introduced to, you have learned about five major sacrificial categories now. Okay, the Olah, the Mincha, the Seva, or more correctly Seva Shlamim, the Hatat, and now the Asham. And now this is the key. What we're going to study in chapter six and seven are what the priests are to do in regards to these various sacrificial offerings. Big difference. The laymen, the regular Israelites, had their part in the sacrifices, but the priests were the ones that officiated over the whole thing. These two chapters, 6 and 7, deal with the priests. Now, to some extent, the instructions of chapters 6 and 7 kind of overlap with what we've already studied in chapters 1 through 5. So to put a sharp point onto it, we saw many remarks in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 prefaced with the words, If any man, if anyone, then then we continue on with the command. The idea was that those instructions were indeed speaking to anyone, any man, any lay worshiper, the common man, non-priests. Contrast that with the remarks that will preface many of the instructions that we'll read in chapters 6 and 7, which begin, command Aaron and his sons, tell Aaron and his sons. Now, what class of people does Aaron and his sons represent? Priests. Exactly, the priestly class. So for the sake of clarity, we could say that while Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 are general instructions to the worshipers, Leviticus chapter 6 could be called instructions to the priests. So let's back up for just a few minutes to kind of put all this thing in perspective. The main thing we're going to deal with in 6 and 7 is what is to happen with the vast quantities of animals and grain that will be offered as sacrificial offerings. What's to happen with all that? And that issue manifests itself primarily in which parts or portions of these animals and grains that are brought that were to be eaten and that was canned. In practice, most sacrifices actually, were to be eaten either by the priests or by the worshippers, or in some cases they shared it. In particular, while Israel was out in the wilderness, almost all meat, probably on the order of 99% of all meat that was used by Israelites for food was actually first part of a ritual sacrifice. That was their source for meat. In fact, Where animals were sacrificed, in most of the types of sacrifices, only certain portions, small portions, of the animal was put onto the burnt altar and then burned up into ashes and smoke. The vast majority of the animal was used for food. Once Israel entered the promised land, that law was amended such that meat could be killed just for food without first being part of a sacrifice. We'll see that in Leviticus, I rather in Deuteronomy. Now, it was part of God's ordained system that the Israelites' sacrifices of grain and meat and wine were to be used as the primary means of support of the priests. That was their income. In effect, the idea was that the priests were given some of God's portion to eat because all that was offered to be sacrificed belonged to Yehovah. The animals, the grains, the wine brought for sacrifice immediately became God's holy property. The instant the sacrificial offering was brought into the temple grounds, the ownership transferred to the Lord. Part of the meaning of Samachah laying hands on that animal that's to be sacrificed, was to designate that particular animal as the animal whose ownership was being voluntarily transferred from the worshiper to God by means of the priesthood. And it was Jehovah's to do with as he so pleased, and what he pleased was that some of it would be burned up into smoke and ashes, and some would be given back to the worshippers as food, and some would be given to his priests for food. Let's read Leviticus chapter 6. Adonai said to Moshe, Give this order to Aharon and his sons. This is the law... For the burnt offering, Ola, it is what goes up on, on its firewood upon the altar all night long until morning. In this way, the fire of the altar will be kept burning. When the fire is consumed, the burnt offering on the altar, the Kohen, the priest, having put on his linen garment and covered himself with his linen shorts, is to remove the ashes and put them beside the altar. Then he's to remove those garments and put on others before carrying the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. In this way, the fire on the altar will be kept burning and not be allowed to go out. Each morning, the coin is to kindle wood on it, arrange the burnt offering, and make the fat of the peace offerings go up in smoke. Fire is to be kept burning on the altar continually. It's not to ever go out. This is the law for the grain offering. The sons of Aharon are to offer it before Adonai in front of the altar. He is to take from the grain offering a handful of its fine flour, some of its olive oil, and all of the frankincense which is on the grain offering. And he is to make this reminder portion of it go up in smoke on the altar as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. The rest of it Aharon and his sons are to eat. It is to be eaten without leaven in a holy place. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting the tabernacle it is not to be baked with leaven I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire like the sin offering and the guilt offering it is especially holy every male descendant of Aaron may eat from it it is his share of the offerings for Adonai made by fire forever throughout all your generations whatever touches those offerings will become holy Adonai said to Moses, This is the offering for Adonai that Aaron and his sons are to offer on the day he is anointed. Two quarts of fine flour, half of it um, in the morning, half in the evening, as a grain offering from then on. It is to be well mixed with olive oil and fried on a griddle. Then bring it in, break it in pieces, and offer the grain offering as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. The anointed Kohen who will take Aaron's place from among his descendants will offer it. It is a perpetual obligation. It must be entirely made to go up in smoke for Adonai. Every grain offering of the Kohen is to be entirely made to go up in smoke. It's not to be Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons this is the law for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before Adonai in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is especially holy. The priest who offers it for sin is to eat it. It is to be eaten in a holy place, in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whoever, whatever, touches its flesh will become holy. If any of its blood splashes on any item of clothing, you're to wash it in a holy place. The clay pot in which it's cooked must be broken. If it's cooked in a bronze pot, it must be scoured and rinsed in water. Any male from a family of priests may eat the sin offering. It is especially holy. But no sin offering which has had any of its blood brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place is to be eaten. It's to be burned up completely. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Okay. Chapter 6 starts off by telling us that what follows, as it says in verse 2, is a command to Aaron and his sons, the priests. And the first instruction concerns the priest's duties when conducting the ritual of the olah, the burnt offering. Now the priests are told something that is perhaps the most important element of the burnt offering. The fire has to be kept burning and never must it ever go out. And we're going to talk about that a little more in just a minute. Okay. Next is that the Olah offering, the animal itself, is to remain on that altar, on top of that fire, all night long. Let me explain. The Allah was conducted daily by the priests without fail. Two one-year-old male sheep, rams, right, were to be the sacrificial animals. And these particular rams were not provided by the worshipers, but they were from special flocks owned by the priesthood on behalf of all Israel and raised for this one purpose. Okay. One of the rams was sacrificed in the morning, the other was sacrificed in the evening as an offering for the whole nation. Okay. The Allah was what began each day's routine of sacrificing animals and then grains right, on the altar. First the ram was killed and burned up then an accompanying mincha, grain offering was burned up and then this was followed up with a libation offering usually wine Other times of water. Now the evening olah, the evening time burnt offering of a male ram was to be left on that fire grill of the enormous brazen altar all throughout the night. This was the final sacrifice of the day. No sacrificing was permitted after sundown. Therefore, no sacrificing was performed after the completion of this evening, law sacrifice. In the morning, a priest had the duty now to remove the ashes from the previous day's round of sacrificing and to take the now dim altar fire, add some wood, bring it back to the necessary roaring flames, to properly and quickly burn up the sacrificial offerings that would be brought, now all during this new day. And the priest whose duty, it is to remove the ashes and stoke that altar fire in the morning is to wear his typical priestly outfit of white linen garments while he's performing the first part of the task. And note the precise steps that are ordained. The ashes are to be removed, piled up beside the brazen altar, and then that same priest takes off his typical priestly garments, changes into another set of clothes to move that ash heap to another place. And while on a practical level, this changing of clothing may have something to do with the prevention of getting ashes all over his nice priestly garment, That's not the main issue. Instead, it has to do with this priest needing to cart these ashes from that pile next to the altar to a place outside the camp. Here's that important term again. Outside the camp. And we now know That in Moses' time, in the days of the wilderness tabernacle, outside the camp designated a place beyond that area that all those hundreds of thousands of tents that the tribes of Israel lived in. Tents that were erected in a more or less circular pattern around the tabernacle that lay in the center. And outside of that area was a place where the ashes were dumped. This one little spot was considered to be clean. That is, it wasn't defiled and it wasn't common. But also, it wasn't holy. It was just clean. Now, the priest is to wear his official priestly garments only within the confines of the encampment of Israel and under most circumstances, the garments he wears while he's performing his duties at the wilderness tabernacle, can't even be worn outside the grounds of the tabernacle. Otherwise, they're defiled. Now, as an aside, the priests are to wear garments made out of fine linen. And by the way, some of their items, some of the items in their outfits also are a combination of linen and wool mixed together. Okay, That's going to be interesting to talk about tomorrow in Deuteronomy. Okay, Now, the linen that they use is, is the best linen. And we can only imagine where they got the thread from for that. I have no doubt that they brought it with them or traded for it from Egypt. I mean, it's kind of interesting when you begin to think of the logistics of what's going on here. Here they were, when all these instructions were being given to Moses, wandering around the Sinai and the Arabian deserts. They didn't grow crops. They basically just pastured flocks and herds. This points out an element of the Exodus that we usually don't think about. The Israelites did a lot of trading. They conducted a lot of business while they were out there all that time. You simply can't hide three million people. Egyptian records from that era, Canaanite records, even Hittite archives indicate a great awareness of the various peoples inhabiting Northern Africa and the middle and far east of this enormous gaggle of Israelites wandering around out there. Okay. And it's not as though the nation of Israel moved every day. Okay. They were usually in one spot for a minimum of a year, right, and another spot sometimes longer. They were, there really were precious few spots, few locations... Um, that provided both pasture for their animals and a plain large enough for all those tents to be set up on, and a water supply large enough for their needs. I suspect it was pretty common knowledge just exactly where they were at any given moment in time. So likely as soon as the Israelites escaped Pharaoh's army, they established contacts with traders and merchants, most of which probably just followed them. All right, right on out of Egypt. All right. And Israel would have a lot of needs from certain spices used for seasoning food to olive oil and frankincense used for both household and sacrificial purposes to dyes, to cookware. The list goes on and on. Chief on that list would have been high quality linen for use by the large and growing priestly class. And linen was a common item offered by traders. But what did the Israelites have to trade to obtain these items? A lot of gold and silver. They had been given literally tons of it when they left Egypt. So they had the ability to buy many important items that they needed in their daily life. And I suppose they probably also bartered animals from their herds and flocks. Anyway, one of the most interesting and mysterious aspects of this chapter is this instruction that the fire on the altar was to be perpetual it could never be allowed to go out now why is that? well in fact we're never explicitly told in the Bible why that is the list of suggestions though by scholars and rabbis is long and I don't want to spend too much time with this because sometimes I think it's just best to leave a biblical mystery a mystery sometimes Too often, the search to fill in the blanks leads to allegory and whole new man-made doctrines that are dubious at best. I, I don't like to go there. Calvin had a very interesting perspective that at least is scripturally based. He explains what we do know about that fire. And it is that that fire on the brazen altar was originally lit how? By fire coming down from heaven. We're told that. Alright, we will be told about that in Leviticus 9. Okay. That is, the fire that started, the first fire in that brazen altar was divine fire. And as long as it never went out, as long as it was kept stoked, then all the fire that came from that original divine fire was considered of holy origin. That principle that whatever is extracted from or joined to the divinely holy is itself holy originates from this instruction in Leviticus. If, recall a passage in the New Testament. It reminds us of that same important principle just presented in another way. Romans 11.16 Now if the challah offered is, uh, as first fruits is holy so is the whole loaf. And if the root's holy so are the branches. This is the same principle. Many years later when Solomon built that first temple which was to replace the tabernacle and a new and even larger brazen altar was built we're told in second chronicles chapter 7 that when the temple was consecrated fire came down again from heaven and kindled that altar's fire okay without that occurring because that altar fire believe me had gone out a long time before that okay nothing of a holy and therefore atoning nature could have even occurred at that brazen altar. It would have amounted to no more than an enormous barbecue pit. Therefore, since the command was never to let this particular fire at the altar go out, there was something pretty special associated with it. In some ethereal ways, it's not fully explainable. God's own presence is associated with the fire of the brazen altar. You see, in God's economy, without blood, and without the divine fire to burn it up, atonement's utterly impossible. If the altar fire were ever quenched, atonement would become impossible, because man-made fire just won't do the trick. The coals used on the brazen altar of incense inside the tabernacle had to come from the coals produced in the brazen altar. So if the brazen altar fire was ever quenched, they couldn't even offer incense to Yehovah. So there was perhaps no more sacred and critical duty performed by the priesthood than to assure that under no circumstances did that altar fire go out. Boy, were they in trouble. Now, remembering that all the New Testament was written while the temple was still standing, and therefore all these Levitical rituals were still being performed, except perhaps during some of the later writings of John, the earthly New Testament authors would have used these all-important temple procedures that we're reading about that they had participated in since their earliest childhood and continued to participate in, by the way, even after Yeshua, it's so understandable that they would use those things in their analogies and illustrations in their writings. When in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to his Christian brothers, do not quench the Spirit. Hmm, what an interesting choice of words. Don't quench the spirit. He's using a fire word. A thirst word. Don't quench it. He was certainly using the analogy of the danger of quenching the perpetual brazen altar fire. That is, since the advent of Yeshua HaMashiach, the spirit of God that has been placed in every believer is now representative of that holy fire. What came down on the heads of those disciples at Shavuot? Fire. Tongues of fire. Okay. Quenching the Holy Spirit brought the same result, it brings the same result, as quenching the altar fire. God's presence would have vanished, and there was no means by which a man could replace it. I mean, think about that. What that means, I and mean, I can't think of a greater catastrophe than that we would quench the fire of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, beginning in verse seven, the subject changes it's from the olah, which involves an animal, to the minka, which involves grain. That the priests had to perform. And the minka. Very often involved. What particularly if you have a version of the king's. King James will say is meal. And For those of you who aren't as old as I am. All right. Meal is an old fashioned term for ground up grain. Corn meal. We learned in chapter two that the preparation of the minka could be in a number of ways. Usually one or the other being specifically called for depending on when and who the worshiper was that was associated with that minka offering. And it could have been cooked or uncooked flour. It could have been baked in an oven, uh, grilled on a griddle. It could even have been produced in wafer form. Okay, now, interestingly, we see here that the priests were required to eat of the minka offering. They didn't have the option of saying, no thanks, I'm not hungry for grain today. They had to eat it. The ritual is very specific. In the case of the minka offering eaten by priests, a portion of the flour that was offered had to be used to make these unleavened cakes. And it was these unleavened cakes that the priests were to eat. Further, they had to eat it inside the tabernacle. Tabernacle, we're told, or as it typically says, tent of meeting. Okay? Now, just to be clear, this doesn't actually mean inside the tent. They didn't have a picnic inside there. Okay? It meant outside in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And they usually ate it, it says, at the door to the sanctuary. And then whatever was left over had to be destroyed. And in verse 10 we're told why such specific instructions are given as to how the priests are to eat this particular grain. It's because this food is classified as Kodesh kodashim, most sacred offering. Kodesh kodashim. All the offerings of chapter 6 and then on into the first few verses of chapter 7 are classified as most sacred. Okay. The remainder of chapter 7 regard, will regard the offerings as something else. It's called Kodesh Kalim. Okay. Offerings of lesser sanctity. And just as we're discovering that Levi, Leviticus rather classifies sins into different categories that reflect more or less seriousness of it, right in Jehovah's eyes, so are the sacrifices, of course, put into an order based on their level of holiness. Now verse 11 tells us that only males and only Aaron's descendants, can eat of this portion. Let me explain that. While all of descend- Aaron's descendants are Levites, not all Levites are Aaron's descendants. You with me? Okay. Aaron's descendants are called Cohen, Priest. Okay. If a person is a Kohen, they are a blood descendant of Aaron and they're entitled to be a priest. The tribe of Levi was made up of many families. Aaron's family was just one. We must not think that the terms Levite and priest are the same thing. Even though the Levites are often called the priestly tribe, in reality, only one of the several families of Levites is qualified to be the priests the descendants of Aaron. The other Levite families and their descendants are given other duties involving the tabernacle later on the temple, but they're not called priests. And they can't officiate the various rituals that we're reading about in Leviticus. Now, the end of verse 11 faces us with another very interesting mystery that will kind of bring us to the end of our lesson tonight. Look at it carefully. Open your Bibles and take a look at verse 11. Depending on your version, the last portion of verse 11 says something like like this. Anything that touches these shall become holy. This isn't the last time we're going to meet that statement. So exactly what does that mean? does it mean in this case that any person who touches a holy portion of food set aside for the free priests that person becomes holy does it mean that the plate that the food from that sacrifice is served on becomes holy simply because it came into contact with the food that has been declared holy actually up to now that's been the general verdict as to the meaning of this now, a lot of theologians and Bible scholars have determined that verse 11's meaning is that anything that com- comes in contact with holiness becomes holy itself. Now, we're not going to spend too much time with that tonight, all right, but we simply can't go around this issue and ignore it either. Okay, and I have serious reservations about whether the common translation and meaning of that verse is correct. Baruch Levine, one of the most, one of the foremost Hebrew and Old Testament scholars of our day thinks that perhaps there's a much more credible meaning that better fits the overall pattern on this rather important subject that's laid out here. And that biblical pattern is this, that whatever touches anything unclean becomes unclean. But anything that touches holiness doesn't necessarily become holy. To the contrary. If something that's not clean or not holy touches holiness, or better, if something that is not authorized for holiness touches holiness, usually results in death and destruction. Follow that through the Bible and find out if that's not true. That's what happens. Okay. Is it because some element of holiness was contracted right, by someone or something that was never intended to have it? That he or she has to be destroyed or that thing has to be destroyed? Probably. Yeah. All right. The pattern seems to be a one-way street. Uncleanness can be transferred via contact to something that was clean, but holiness must not be transferred by contact to something that was unclean or common. Holiness can only be imputed holiness can only be declared that is God bestows it at his command God makes rules as to what and who can be holy and how it can happen nothing becomes holy by accident in God's economy a person can't buy holiness nor obtain it by his own will You can't lay your head on a pillow and get holiness from it. Ain't going to happen. So with that pattern in mind, a better rendering of the instruction here that usually is translated, anything that touches these becomes holy, is almost certainly anyone who is to touch these must be in a holy state. You with me? see the difference so for instance the verse we're discussing is saying that only people who are in a state of declared holiness are authorized to come into contact with that holy portion of food that's what this was all about remember the holy portion of food okay all else are excluded. We can all recall the stories in the Bible of what happened when the Philistines took the precious and unimaginably holy Ark of the Covenant from Israel in battle. Thousands of Philistines died. The statue of their chief god, Dagon, was toppled and destroyed. We even read of the Ark being transported by Levites when it appeared the Ark might suddenly fall. A Levite reached out his hand, touched the Ark to steady it, he died on the spot. Perhaps the best and most explicit proof of what I'm telling you about this one-way street, right, unclean and holiness, um, is conceived in Haggagai. Right? Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Haggai chapter 2. And we're going to look at three verses there. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. I know, that's not an easy to find, is it? <laughs> Didn't have a lot of dog ears on that page, does it? Yes, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's on 772. <laughs> Good reason to get one, huh? Okay, verse 11 of chapter 2. Here's what Adonai's quote says. Ask the priests what the Torah says about this. If someone carries meat that has been set aside as holy in a fold of his cloak, and then he lets his cloak touch bread, stew, wine, olive oil, or any other food, does that food become holy too? The Kohen answered, no. No. And then Haggai said, uh, "Haggai said, if someone who is unclean from having touched a corpse touches any of these food items, will they become unclean?" And the priest answered, "They will become unclean." Here it is stated rather clearly that it was common knowledge, at least in that day, that the protocol of holiness is that it generally cannot be transferred by mere physical touch. But uncleanness, unholiness, most certainly can be transferred by touch, and in fact regularly is. Holiness can be defiled by coming into contact with the common or the unclean. Therefore, it's critical that holiness is carefully guarded. Next week, we'll finish up chapter 6.